My name is Bill Warner. Uh, my wife, Devana, is here as well. We are members of the Indian Creek campus, and uh, we send you greetings from Indian Creek, and we're happy to be with you. Today's section in uh, our, our walk through the book of Hebrews, fascinating book outside the Gospels, just a, on a personal note, my favorite book of the New Testament is the book of Hebrews. Sometimes it's, it's, we're about halfway through the book, and sometimes it's good to, so why are we doing this kind of a thing? So I want to, at the risk of insulting your intelligence, uh, I want to set the stage, um, kind of a 30,000-foot view for the message today, and hopefully it makes sense. Um, although they are the dreaded enemy, um, Vince Lombardi of the Green, Green Bay Packers would start out his training camp, and he would hold up what? Anybody know? And he would say what? Okay. In that spirit, what is this? This is the Bible. Not only is it God's Word, but it is also a story. And we would do well as Christians, as disciples of Christ, to remember both of those. It is God's Word, but it's also a story. And, and, and because it's a story, we can't pick and choose what we're going to fit into where. We have to follow the narrative of Scripture. I just happen to think it's a great story ever told. I don't, there's not a close second to the story that is this book. It is a story of God's redemptive activity in the world. And it's set in stages. It's, it follows an arc. We might say uh, uh, it, it, it has four acts, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. In this story, we're starting to descend a little bit. In this story, this book makes some claims. One of the claims that this book uh, makes is it is God's revelation of himself to us. That's a claim that it makes. And also a claim that it makes is we can come to understand who we are in light of who he is. So those are a couple claims that this book makes. Now, it seems to me that at this point, we have one of two choices. I teach uh, juniors and seniors in in high school, and I, I often do this. You have, when it comes to this book, dear saint, dear child of God, you only have two choices. Either this book stands in authority over you and you submit to it, or you stand in authority over it and it submit. That's it. Those are our choices. We can submit to the story or not. Be careful how you choose, because there's a lot riding on your choice. For example, there's a lot of complete, uh, competing truth claims out there as to who or what is God. Let me give you some examples. The Bible says God is Yahweh, the self-existent one. Other truth claims regarding God are they're the gods, plural, multiple gods, um, atheists claim there is no God. 
God is the material universe since the material is the only reality. There is no immaterial. There is no spiritual reality. Or new spiritualists would claim, I am God. Be careful how you choose. Or when it comes to humans, what, what, is, what does the Bible say about humanity? We are beautiful yet fallen. We are created in the image of God, but we are fallen creatures. Other competing truth claims. We are a highly complex machine, a naked ape, a sleeping God. Finally, what happens after death? Be careful how we choose. What happens after death? Does it involve a blessed hope as this story teaches? Is it personal extinction? Is it transformation to a higher state? Is it reincarnation? Tons of competing truth claims when it comes to what's reality. The Bible has a unique story. Greatest story ever told. So, in light of the Bible's claims regarding Revelation, I think, I think there's a fundamental question that we need to wrestle with. When I read that book, do I allow it to read me? Let me say that again. When I read this book, if it is what it claims to be, do I allow the Bible, the Word of God, God's revelation of Himself to us, do I allow this book to read me? So I just want to set the stage because we're about the midway point in the book of Hebrews, and I think it's good to revisit Christianity 101. I'm of the firm conviction. You never outgrow Christianity 101. This is a football. This is the Word of God, and it's a story. So we're at a point in God's grand redemption story that is similar to the audience of the book of Hebrews with a significant difference. Both the audience of the book of Hebrews and us, as we move and breathe right now, we are, we are living in this already-not-yet tension that a lot of theologians refer to it as. We're living between the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ. We're living in what's typically referred to as the church age. The big difference is the, the, the audience of the book of Hebrews were much closer to the resurrection. We are closer to the return of Christ. But there is this basic similarity. We're between the resurrection of Jesus and the return of Jesus. And now we're at a point in the book of Hebrews. Fascinating, fascinating part of uh, the, the book of Hebrews. We're at a point in the book of Hebrews where we might describe things this way, and this is why it matters that we see this book as a story. The author of Hebrews at this point, intentionally selects from God's story to help us make sense of God's story for the sake of God's story. Intentionally selects from God's story, so he's tacking, it's tapping into the arc of God's overarching redemption story. He's tapping into it. I'm going to talk about that. Help us make sense of God's story. Where are we at in the redemption story? What is our place for the sake of God's story, that is, His glory in redemption. So the author of Hebrews 
We're kind of the implied audience. We're the secondary audience. He's trying to alert us to something. So the author of Hebrews does this at this point in the book. So so he dips into the story, and he goes from from when he wrote the story roughly 2,000 years back, and he pulls out this obscure person by the name of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is mentioned in the book of Genesis, Psalm 110, and in the book of Hebrews, and that's it. He's really an obscure fellow. You've already, we've already been introduced to him in Hebrews 5 and in the last message, the tail end of chapter 6. So Hebrews 5, verse 1 and 6, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. To do what? To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Note that well, going to come back to that verse. And then verse 6, where the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you're following along a couple weeks ago, it's like, boom, he throws that out there and he moves on. He is now tail end of chapter 6 and now chapter 7 and well into chapter 7, chapter 8. He's, he's unpacking this dude Melchizedek and what he is all, all about and how it relates to Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus, greatest of all time, the writer of Hebrews is helping us understand in various ways, shapes, and forms how Jesus is bigger, badder, better than anything and everyone else. So I'm going to suggest to you in these 10 verses in Hebrews chapter 7 that there are three common, I'm going to call them touch points, that the author helps us understand between Jesus and this obscure fellow by the name of Melchizedek. The first touch point is found in verses 1 and 2. It's Jesus and Melchizedek share the same position. Verses 1 and 2. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So what the author of Hebrews does, he's now beginning to unpack Melchizedek, and he's beginning to give us several descriptive characteristics. Now we know, because we've kind of peeked ahead, that he is comparing Melchizedek to Jesus. So there's something that they hold in common And we'll get to that. So first and foremost, Melchizedek is a priest. We go back to uh, chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest chosen from a man is, number one, appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. When it relates to the priesthood, specifically the high priest, keep this in mind as we walk through this message. The high priest was where God and man met. The temple was where heaven and earth met. So the high priest is kind of that intermediary between God and man. 
He represents God to man and man to God. The high priest is where God and humanity meet. Of God most high. I'm going to come back to the king of Salem part. So he's, a, he's the priest of God most high. El Elyon. Often in the Old Testament, that refers to the one true God of Israel. Kind of interesting, isn't it? This Canaanite king priest is priest to El Elyon, the most high God, the one true God, the true God of Israel. He met Abraham. So, so what the author of Hebrews does is he dips back into Genesis 14, where there's like two verses where Melchizedek is mentioned. And he talks about Abraham going to rescue his nephew Lot, defeats some kings, and he's on his way back. And this dude, Melchizedek, approaches him and meets him. And the author of Hebrews is going to kind of take us through that story. He's going to unpack that story for us and help us understand the significance between Jesus and Melchizedek. King of righteousness, king of Salem, king of peace. So Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness. Keep that word in mind. Righteousness. He's also king of Salem, which would later become Jerusalem or Salem, which quite literally means peace. Salem means peace. So we have these uh, beginning descriptions of Melchizedek, priest, king of righteousness, king of Salem, king of peace. And now the author of Hebrews begins to bring it home. Verse 3, I would suggest to you, is actually the second touch point between Jesus and Melchizedek. Jesus and Melchizedek share the same permanence. The descriptive characteristics continue in verse 3. He is, that is, Melchizedek, is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, and here it is, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now he begins to match up. Now he begins to compare. Now he begins to marry up Jesus with Melchizedek, resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So let's look at this. Verse 3, without father or mother or genealogy, neither beginning of days nor end of life. So we have to ask a question. Was, who, who was this guy? Was he just a, like a, a, a real human person? Was he a god? Was he a... Here's who Melchizedek was. Basically an ordinary guy who the writer of Hebrews dips in and sees him, key word, and sees him as a type, T-Y-P-E, sees him as a type. That's what this word resembling means. So the writer of Hebrews can argue that in the book of Genesis, which is a book all about genealogies, all about genealogies, and all of a sudden, we're introduced to this guy, Melchizedek, who has no genealogy, who has no beginning nor end. In a book of genealogies, 
it stands out that here's a guy who doesn't have a genealogy. No father, mother listed, nothing listed on the front end or back end. The writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us something in this comparison of Jesus, the Son of God, with Melchizedek. Resembling being made similar to. So, Melchizedek, I'm going to unpack this very important term, type, for us. Melchizedek is put forth to us by the writer of Hebrews as an Old Testament type whose fulfillment is found in the New Testament. Specifically, Melchizedek's fulfillment is found in the person of Jesus Christ. So a type is a figure, a symbol, representative of something future, something yet to come. The type is the shadow of the anti-type. The type is the shadow. The anti-type is the fulfillment of the type. And the anti-type, the fulfillment, is always more glorious than the type. So in this case, Jesus is more glorious in his high priesthood than Melchizedek ever was. He continues a priest forever. So the writer of Hebrews seems to view Melchizedek as just kind of an ordinary guy who is a type foreshadowing Jesus. That's why you have to see this as a story. It's a story. Genesis through Revelation. One grand master narrative. In this way, Melchizedek is comparable to the eternal, love this, to the eternal high priesthood of Jesus Christ. Is it not staggering to you that in his condescension, Jesus Christ has forever conjoined himself to a physical body, to a human body. And right now, he has your back before the Father. Seated at his right hand, he has the Father's ear on your behalf. Staggering. How... How low? What's the distance between the throne room of heaven and an animal feeding trough? Bethlehem. How do you measure that? Dear child of God, I pray that you never outgrow that you never get past, that this kind of stuff about Jesus Christ never grows old, never grows stale for you. Staggering. The third touch point, verses 5 through 10. Jesus and Melchizedek share the same power, but I want to hit verse 4, and then we'll get to verses 5 through 10. 
Verse 4, see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. Verse 4 is the linchpin of this passage. It connects the first three verses with verses 5 through 10. The author begins to press his point home. See how great. By calling Melchizedek great, he's telling us something. Of, what, what's this series all about? Greatest of all time. By calling Melchizedek great, he's telling us something about Jesus. Verses, uh, verse 5. And those descendants of Levi, so Levi, the Levitical priesthood, appointed by, ordained by God, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. There's a flow of thought here. But this man who does not have his descent from them, talking about Melchizedek, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So let's unpack that briefly. Under Old Testament law, the, the, the Levites were to kind of, uh, the, the priesthood to, to, to minister in the temple. So they were to receive tithes from the other tribes, from the people. Now Levi, Levitical priesthood, Levi was a descendant of Abraham. That's important to keep in mind. So in this encounter between Melchizedek and Abraham, the superior person, Melchizedek, blesses the inferior person, Abraham. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews is drawing a conclusion for us. He's pointing us in a direction. Therefore, Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. The Levites came from through Abraham. Melchizedek did not. Melchizedek, the superior, blesses Abraham, the inferior. Therefore, the conclusion in the context of the priesthood is the Melchizedek priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. Verse 8. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. That's Melchizedek, that he lives. Remember, in a book of genealogies, he doesn't have one. He's seen as forever existing. He's seen as eternal. So Melchizedek is seen as a priest forever. Hence, the Melchizedek priesthood being eternal, superior to the Levitical priesthood. Verse 9. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham, for he was still, that is, Levi, was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. The writer's point, quite simply, is this. Melchizedek and thus the one who has inherited his priesthood, that's Jesus. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and therefore greater than Levi, for Abraham is greater 
than Levi. I've rather quickly walked through these 10 verses. But I want to I want to kind of kind of turn the page a little bit. Because eventually we have to ask the question, don't we? So what? What in the world? Think about it. The distance between when Abraham walked the earth and Jesus walked the earth is roughly the same distance from when Jesus walked the earth and when that's a long that's a long time, yes? It's a long time. What in the world does this part of the story have to do with me? <laughs> Pretty much everything. Pretty much everything. Three common touch points between Jesus and Melchizedek. Jesus and Melchizedek share the same position, permanence, and power. In his priesthood, his high priestly role, Jesus is the greatest of all time. So let's explore the question. Why does this matter? Or maybe put another way, why should this matter? Because, dear saints, it ought to. It had better. Where are you at with this book? Is it here? Or is it here? You only have two choices. We stand under it or we stand over it. You may have noticed I've titled the sermon, Jesus, My One Defense, My Righteousness. For those of you who are aware, obviously that's a line from a song, excuse me, by Matt Marr. And his song is, Lord, I Need You. I found it interesting while I was out there before the service, kind of over the intercom, that song is playing. I'm like, that's God thing there. I, I guess I'm supposed to preach this. <clears throat> the chorus goes like this. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. By the way, probably a prayer we should pray every single day, maybe several times a day. Every hour I need you, and here's the line, my one defense, my righteousness. Excuse me. Oh, God, how I need you. My one defense. Why? Because he's enough. He is all you need. My one defense, my righteousness. Going to come back to that. Love this, the great exchange at the cross. Jesus got all your sin, you get his righteousness. All of it. My one defense, my righteousness. It's Jesus plus nothing. Always has been, always will be. Amen? Jesus plus nothing when it comes to your salvation. And by the way, he is still speaking to the Father on your behalf. Remember, A high priest is where God and humanity meet. Who's our high priest? Where we and the Father meet. Where we are reconciled 
to God himself. I, I, I want to suggest some things to you that I've noticed in Scripture, that I've noticed in my life, that I've noticed in the lives of others over the course of several decades. As it relates to Jesus' priesthood, I'm going to suggest to you five things, five consequences of misunderstanding Jesus and his role as our high priest. If we misunderstand Jesus' priesthood and his high priestly role, we may, number one, develop a deficient understanding of Jesus as one who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. As one who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. Sometimes I get pushback on this. But how? How can Jesus understand? How, how does he get it? How can he sympathize? He never sinned. I would caution you to not go there too quickly. Paraphrasing something C.S. Lewis did, talked about, wrote about. Let me see if I can illustrate how Jesus not only can sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but he actually gets it better than we do. This is the beginning of a temptation. This is the end of a temptation. Fair enough? All good? Okay. You're tempted, and you begin your resisting of that temptation. If you go all the way to the end and fully resist that temptation in that moment, in that situation, we might say that with that one temptation, you were fully exercised by that temptation. Put another way, you understand with that singular temptation what it was like to be fully tempted. You experienced the full temptation yet without sin. Fair enough? We good? However, as you know, that's not always the case, is it? Sometimes we are tempted and we begin our resisting, but we never make it to the end of full resistance. Here's why this, is, here's why this matters. Because in that particular temptation, we'll never know what it was like to fully resist that temptation and therefore be fully exercised by that temptation. We gave in too soon. There is a sense, therefore, and we do that a lot, there is a sense, there, therefore, that we really don't know how bad badness is. Not so with Jesus. Not so with Jesus. Because with every single temptation, Jesus was always fully exercised because he never gave in. Jesus, therefore, understands badness better than we ever will. Does, does that make sense? He gets it. Therefore, not only can he sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but he gets it to a degree that, that we don't. But if we have a deficient understanding of Jesus as our high priest, we are prone to that kind of thinking. Second, 
If we misunderstand Jesus' priesthood and his high priestly role, we may become trapped in legalism, a vicious cycle of pride and depression, both of which are based on our performance. Child of God, please hear this. The performance took place 2,000 years ago. Stop trying to impress God. Stop. Stop comparing yourselves to other people. Pride. Huh. At least I ain't. Huh. You seen that Timba doll? Oh, my word. What a rascal, yes? At least I'm not as pride, right? Performance. I'm comparing. Or depression. I'm still comparing. I could never measure up to Tim. You see how righteous he is? Both of those are performance-based. And we, as Christians, I'm talking Christians, we will fall into that hole, man, if we don't understand Jesus' high priestly role as it relates to us. Third, this follows. If we misunderstand Jesus' priesthood, his high priestly role, we may display a general lack of love, grace, and mercy toward ourselves and others. Not looking for an audience show of hands here, but I want you to consider this. Is it not true that at times, more times than we would care to admit, that we require more of ourselves and others? We like to extract more guilt, shame, and suffering from ourselves and others than even God does. Truth? Fourth, if we misunderstand Jesus' priesthood, his high priestly role, we may see God as cold, distant, stern, and harsh. Kind of, kind of the mindset he's waiting to, for us to screw up so he can squash us like a bug. That's not it. And lastly, if we misunderstand Jesus' priesthood and his high priestly role, we may see Jesus as a God we are more tr- uh, prone to run from than run to in our time of need. Dear saint, run to him. Stop running from him. He gets it. He understands. He died for it all. Quickly run back to him. As I wind this up, I, I want to try and help us understand uh, it, like a very real example of what it might look like, of what it did look like in Jesus' uh, high priestly role. So I'm going to pull, pull an example and try and contextualize it in our culture. It's from Vintage Jesus, and it's taken uh, kind of a paraphrase of Matthew 9, 9 through 13. An example of Jesus' priestly work in the life of one person is found in Matthew 9, 9 through 13. We meet a man named Matthew, a crooked thief and tax collector, who is despised by everyone. While sitting at his tax booth extorting people one day, none other than Jesus walks by. Rather than confronting, and we might add condemning Matthew, Jesus surprisingly extends a hand of friendship to him by inviting himself to Matthew's house for dinner. 
Joining them later at the party at Matthew's house was nothing short of a very bad hip-hop video, complete with women in clear heels, dudes with their pants around their ankles, and handguns in their underwear strap, lots of gold teeth, bling, spinners on camels, cheap liquor, and grinding to really loud music with a lot of bass. When word got out to the religious folks, they were perplexed as to how Jesus could roll with such a jacked-up posse. And Jesus answered to them. Jesus' response to them was purely priestly. They're sick. And they need mercy. That's who Jesus is in his high priestly role. He looks around the world and he says, people are sick and they need mercy. He truly is our one defense. He truly is our righteousness. Leave you with this thought. 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have, and here it is, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You see, dear child of God, Jesus is where heaven and earth meet. Jesus is where we meet the Father. Jesus represents the Father to us and us to the Father. And may I suggest to you, there is no better story anywhere in the history of ever.